I'm Matt Schrader, and this is a special bonus interview episode. I'm sitting alongside Randy Frakes, an accomplished author and screenwriter of science fiction stories and an award-winning investigative journalist before that, uh, and one of uh, James Cameron's closest friends before anybody knew his name. Randy, thank you for, uh, for having us here. Thank you for inviting me. I want to go back to the start. You met Jim through a girlfriend. Yes. What was it that you had in common? Well... He, but the way he approached her in psych class, uh, and he said all the good-looking girls go to psych class, which is why he took psych. <laughs> uh, he said uh, uh, she told him that he spoke the same way I did, that we talked about science fiction. We talked about life philosophically in a very similar way, using even similar words. And so she thought it would be good if we met each other. So I'm, I met her in the quad between classes. I was also going to the same school she was going to Fullerton College and uh, I see her coming accompanied by this big tall guy who at the time had a red beard and long hair looked like a Viking and I th- or a biker and I thought what what's this all about and she comes up and she introduces him and it was like we were two dogs sniffing a bone you know and uh, checking each other out and but within three sentences I knew there's something resonant in that guy that was that I was going to connect with. He knew a lot more about literary science fiction and literary science fiction authors than I did. I knew more about film than he did. So uh, science fiction film. So we had an immediate, aside from my girlfriend, we had an immediate common ground in our interests and uh, passions. He was uh, not as big a film fan as I was. He was more literary at that time. And I was a little light on that. So I started talking to him about certain authors and he said, oh yeah, they're good because of this, that, and the other thing. And I th- that led to many conversations we had on the phone. And eventually I came over to his house. He showed me artwork he'd done, sketches. He showed me uh, the first five chapters of a handwritten on legal pad novel called Necropolis. And I started reading that and I went, wow, this guy is really sophisticated in his prose the poetry and the prose, the preciseness of it and, and the ideas were very mature. And, you know, at the time he was like 19. So. And this is all handwritten? Yeah, all handwritten. On those yellow notepads? Yeah. And, uh, and then he showed me some model work he'd done and I went, you know what? You should be a film director. And he said, why? And I said, because all these skills I see here that you have would be useful for a film director to help him sell the story. It's not so much making the movie is selling the idea to financiers and uh, to get funding for your projects. I mean, you can do storyboards, you can write the script, you can, you know, sculpt models, you can do all kinds of things to market this thing. He was pretty good He's very what good. I've seen. He's very good and very specifically styled. I mean, I've never seen any other artist do what he does, which is uh, he kind of slightly anamorphosizes, stretches out the horizontal lines of things. Uh, not so much that you notice it, it's very subtle. But like when you did a portrait of me, my face was wider than it really is. <laughs> I thought that was kind of strange. Yeah. But that's his style. And uh, he's also very, very detailed in in surface textures and shading. You know, like classic uh, painters, he knows how to bring things into a 3D focus by using shadows and, and how he uh, highlights the, the uh, characters in the, in the paintings or the landscapes. He was just very meticulous. That's, he's always been meticulous. 
you, Bill Wisher, and James Cameron were part of the same circle in the mid-1970s. Bill told me you were the smartest guy he knew <laughs> and that James was the most focused and I think he used the word determined. Yes. But you guys would sometimes go to Denny's or someplace mm-hmm. after, uh, after a movie and break down what you had just watched for hours into the night. What do you remember talking about in those late night conversations? I was very into themes. I would be, I was, uh, there's a book called The Art of Dramatic Writing by Lajos Igri, which is used as a teaching manual for many people teaching writing. Not so much anymore, but it's a classic. And it teaches this dialectic uh, technique of, you know, trying to break down, in essence, what your story is about. Like in Terminator, for example, it would be unity of opposites would be, okay, you have an implacable killing machine that represents death. And then you have what the opposite of that is, which is life, a pregnant woman. And you put pit them against each other. You know, you've got instantaneous drama. You don't have to do anything. It just sort of writes itself. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we would talk about things like that. I would give him my theories based on that, that book and how it would apply to stories and why it wasn't working in this film we just saw. We would occasionally have arguments where we disagree because we were coming to the same place from a different, the same intersection from a different road. Mm-hmm. And so we'd bring with us some, some difference. But most of the time we agreed and we, we felt very um, justified in our criticisms of the work. We would talk about stuff like that. When it was with Jim and Bill, Bill would contribute an actor's point of view. He was trying to be an actor then. He was a better writer. And, um, but he had, he, he didn't had, want to be a writer though. No, he, At wanted, the time. he wanted to be an actor and he had a great sense of humor. And uh, that's why Jim used him to write dialogue for uh, additional dialogue for Terminator later because of his facility with dialogue. He was very good at quipping and, and improvis- impro- improvising fun sayings and things that were memorable. And, uh, and I told him he should be a writer and I actually mentored both him and Jim at different times to become writers, screenwriters by showing them, you know, the techniques of screenwriting and everything. They can learn that in about two to three weeks if you're smart. And the rest is all about content and how well you can tell stories, conceptualize stories. Going back, you go to see Star Wars. James says it was seeing Star Wars that really kick-started things on Xenogenesis, finding investors, renting, learning all the gear, all of that stuff. Paint for me the scene at the Chinese theater, summer 1977, you guys going to Star Wars, what was the energy like then? Well, I remember it was an afternoon, I think it was an afternoon performance. I'm not sure whether it's day of the week or or a weekend, but it was a crowd lined up to get tickets in the forecourt of the Chinese theater. The people who worked at the theater were wearing buttons saying, may the force be with you. We didn't know what that was about. And we go inside and sit down. We were about two-thirds back in the center of that theater, which at the time didn't have the big IMAX screen it has now. It just had a more normal size screen, but it was still pretty impressive. And when the film began, the 20th Century Fox logo, and it, and it did the Star Wars thing appearing suddenly after the crawl, and John Williams' music kicked in, I immediately turned to Jim and I said, this is going to be good. Because the the word out on it was that it was this stupid fairy tale thing. There's a lot of negative press from the fans. So I had low expectations. I, you know, I'd, I'd been told that it was George Lucas's version of Flash Gordon, and I, I had no high hopes for it. And but the first thing we noticed is 
the lived-in look of things, the, the casual way he had science fiction tropes come and go so quickly just as minor support for the story, stories, uh, tropes that could be used to fuel an entire story on its own. And, and we were looking at it at that, from that perspective. And then afterwards, the, the first time I've ever seen this is as the credits came up at the end, uh, the music credit came up, said music by John Williams and audiences applauded, (laughs) you know, they stayed to see the whole credits and they applauded the music credit. And I thought, wow, they really were. Yeah. Yeah. This, this film connected with an audience emotionally and, it reminded me when I was watching it, the scene where they're doing the Death Star in the trenches, trying to destroy the Death Star, it was very much like a movie called The Dam Busters, a British film made in the mid-50s, in which it's a very similar thing. They have to do a mission, they have to blow up a dam, and they have to go through a, a bunch of flack to, to get close enough to blow it up. And I thought, well, Lucas probably saw that movie, and I found out later he did, and he actually used images from it for his visual storyboard and a crude digital storyboard back then. He and may have even spliced it in with uh, the cut of the film, if I'm not he mistaken. Said he, yeah, he said he did. Mm-hmm. And so he could show his animators who were working with the models what he wanted, which is why all the ships are moving in an aerodynamic way in space, which is ridiculous. You know, <laughs> right. And George Lucas, in an interview he did for Cameron's book, The Story of Science Fiction, which I worked on, mm-hmm. uh, he says in his interview... Look, at a certain point, I said, there's going to be sound in space. There's going to be this. The ships are going to move like ships in air because that's what audiences know instinctually as real. And I want to make this as real as I can to them, even though everything I'm doing is fake. Basically, well, I'm paraphrasing badly what he said. But, you know, and the, the, we were aware of that at the time, and I criticized it as being non-scientific. But he said, but who cares? It worked, you know, and I had to say, yeah, you're right. It didn't work. That audience really connected with it. Let's see how well it's doing. And of course, the first couple of weeks it was going through the roof, yeah, outperforming Jaws. And I thought, okay, so audiences like science fiction, but they don't like strict hardcore science fiction. They like science fiction with some fantasy and adventure. Uh-huh. And Jim and I were aware of that. We talked about it. We discussed it. We looked at those movies and we discussed it. But it did inspire us to think of our own idea for a science fiction story that would be like that. You mentioned before that James felt like they took our ideas. Yeah. (laughs) That's how he was viewing it as he was walking out of the theater. Yeah, it was more when he said that he was was being, when he said we, he was being generous because he had the ideas that were groundbreaking and forward thinking. I didn't. I had ideas that were like uh, treading water. They were like good, but they were not groundbreaking. They were not going to propel the genre forward in any way. It was just going to be another good story. But he was the one who had more foresight and he was the one who was always looking ahead and never satisfied with what is. He wanted to see what could be from his point of view, his vision, which was grand. It's always been grand. And so he he had talked with me about ideas about visual science fiction. We talked about the kind of movies we liked, we th- the things that we thought were successful in those films, When Worlds Collide and, and um, other major films that um, had been under budgeted but were spectacular in their concepts and uh he told me some ideas so when we came out and he said man they're they're stealing our, our ideas i knew what he meant he meant the things that i've been visualizing and trying to explain to you how it could be they just did they just did it and we're sitting around on our butts 
and someone else is running away with this idea. It's an idea that occurred to probably a lot of people who were interested in science fiction at the time, but didn't have the talent, the skill, and the luck to connect with the right people to fund their projects to the point where they could be noticed and uh, propel their career forward. So with Jim's, when he said that, he went from uncertain that his visions could be realized on film, that anyone would understand and appreciate it, to seeing that, yes, it is realized, it can be realized, it can be done even for a decent budget under $10 million at the time, which was not a big budget, and that you could connect with an audience on a powerful level with science fiction ideas and take them on a grand, grand journey. And so he went from kind of uncertainty, the outsider, to saying, we could do that with confidence. In just a second, I want to ask you about filming Zeta Genesis. This short film, it ended up being about 12 minutes long, something like that. We'll be right back here with Randy Frakes. Back here now with Randy Frakes. Randy, tell me about the experience of filming Xenogenesis. You guys basically had to teach yourself everything, I understand, of how to actually film this with this equipment that you rented. We didn't know how to thread the film. We had to look at the manuals. We had the guy at the shop we were renting it from show us. And, uh, and I had been a projectionist, film projectionist, and I had trouble with the camera. And uh, it was a complicated thing. It was an Aeroflex and... Uh, I mean, compared to most cameras nowadays, it was a unnecessarily complicated thing, but it gave us lots of options to do the kind of effects work we had to do. And that's why we used that particular camera, because it had the right kind of lenses, it had the right kind of uh, magazines, the right kind of uh, abilities to stop motion and do all that kind of stuff. So we did more study and research, looking at American cinematographer magazines that went way back and... Uh, we learned, we taught ourselves how to use the equipment, how to do stop motion, how to, how to light, how to, how to maximize certain effects with certain lenses, how to, uh, and eventually how to edit and put music to it and all that kind of stuff. Was there a moment where you thought, wow, we're in over our heads here? I felt that several days. It was, it, first of all, it was only supposed to take about two months. We were being paid to do it by a consortium of dentists from Tustin mm -hmm. through a mutual friend who... Um, said they had like $17,000 that they needed to invest for tax purposes. And I said, well, we'll take it. And it was supposed to be a $17,000 project that would last two, two and a half months at most. But we rented a, a, just like in Star Wars, we rented an industrial site and turned it into a studio. And we built a crude set and we built the miniatures and we, we did all the planning. We storyboarded the whole thing, how we were going to do the effects, how we we're going to layer certain things in like laser beams, et cetera, without spending a fortune mm -hmm. and um and then we tried it and it all worked so we were happy but it took three and a half months and my girl not too bad then well my girlfriend said enough you're never around you're making this ridiculous movie bye so that was the end of that and uh, <laughs> you know it does kind of test your family life when you get obsessed with things when you're young you kind of don't care that much but you know it gets more costly as you get older and you have family and you have kids and things that was costly to me in time, energy, and, and that relationship. But I was dedicated to it, you know. And Jim is a, is a, a kind of guy, when you're working for him, you're going to do your best work because he doesn't settle for, for less than perfect. His idea of perfect, of course. There was one big argument we had where I wanted to do an effect very simply, which is to take the tank that is dusting the, the area, this big tank, mm -hmm. which was the model for the Hunter Killer tank in Terminator, we built that, and I wanted to put it up on the roof of the, the 
building we were shooting in at night, shoot at the parking lot and do a forced perspective shot where the guy down below in the parking lot looks like he's right in front of the tank and the tank is huge and it turns and looks at him. It has to turn and look at him. We didn't, I said, we can't stop motion that because there's no light. It's at night. So let's just turn it with something out of camera range, just manually turn the head. And he said, that'll never work. That's too simple. That's too crude. That's stupid. It's going to look dumb. And I said, look, we're spending so much time and energy and effort. We can't spend any more time on this shot. This one shot could be done so simply. And he, he refused to do it for a while. And finally, I started building tables up. We didn't even have a ladder. I had to put tables on tables on tables to get up to the roof. <laughs> yeah. By the time I'm almost up to the top table all by myself, he gets up and he says, oh, my God, you're doing it all wrong. He readjusts the tables. And then he climbed up there and, and we got the model up there and put it on the roof. And he, under protest, put the camera behind the thing, set up the shot with the lens wide enough so we'd get deep focus. We did the shot and it's not perfect, but it's in the film and it works. So that was vindication for me. But most of the time, Jim was a mathematical genius and he would figure these things out down to a T. He was, he was even then in his first project, very much like he is now. There's no major differences in him. So he was very calculating even then. Yes. He, he, was, he, he, would, he would consider environment, material, time, equipment. He would calculate all these things, how they would interact to maximum effect. In a way, he's like an engineer. He was an engineer, and he was able to eyeball tiny little tolerances, distances between pieces of metal that he was working on. And he he has a very sharp focus. One of the reasons why he's successful as he is, he's not only talented from a creative point of view, but he was willing to, like, kill himself to do the work. I mean, that guy hardly slept. That seems to be a theme of his life. Is he? Yes. <laughs> he goes all in on something to the point where he will sacrifice eating, will sacrifice sleeping. Yes, he still does that, but he has to make some. Like he, I think he has an arrangement where he, one day a week he has to spend time with his family, no matter what he's doing, <laughs> unless he's in New Zealand. That must be the way to the way to do it after these years. You are largely to credit for teaching both Bill Wisher and James Cameron about screenwriting basics yes. uh, early on. But you also joined Jim at Roger Corman's studio doing photographic effects, which is is the only kind of time you've you've dabbled in the photographic effects of Xenogenesis and then doing some of the things with Roger Corman. Tell me how that came about. Well, Jim got hired on as a model builder based on Xenogenesis, the short film. And he's very ambitious, so he looks for opportunities to rise up in the ranks, so to speak. And uh, Cam uh, Corman said, listen, I need a spaceship design for this mothership, and nobody's come up with anything I like. So any one of you in the model shop, if you can come up with an idea, sketch it out for me, and I'll, if I like it, I'll use it. So Jim goes, mothership. So he goes, okay, I'm going to design a ship that looks like it has breasts, <laughs> which he did, you know, and Corman loved it. And it's like he hit the nail on the head with that one. And so he said, okay, you build it. So all of a sudden, Jim Cameron went from one of the model builders to one of the top supervising model builders from that one thing. And what Jim did is he, he saw a, a notice from Corman saying, look, we need to come up with some techniques to, uh, to uh, integrate planets and incredible sets in a cheap way. Uh, anybody got any ideas? And Cameron said, oh, yeah, I got an idea. Front projection. And he just knew about front projection simply from reading in a book about how it was built, how you, how you operated the system, relatively complicated system, but cheap. 
So he, he went to Corman and he said, look, I got an idea. Let's do front projection. He goes, what is it? He explained it to him as best he could. Corman went, uh-huh. Okay. How much is it going to cost? He told him. And Jim, of course, underbid. And he said, okay, <laughs> do it then. You go build the rig and you guys operate it. So he needed someone to help him and he knew I was around. So he called me up. He said, hey, you want to help me build a front projection rig? And I said, what? And and we put it all together and we played around with it and we got it perfected and it worked great. New World Pictures is where Jim first met several people who mm -hmm. would be hugely important in the rest of his life. One of those was Gail Ann Hurd, yes. who was just starting her career. She was also ambitious like Jim and... Um, so they were, they had a similar temperament in that respect. Uh, she was very diminutive, but tough. And she like Roger likes people who can run things so he doesn't have to worry about it. And she was good at that. She was a good administrator. So it made sense that Jim would use her as a producer later because he saw how she ran things. She was sort of running the studio while Roger was not there and he was not there very often. So mm -hmm. they were sort of like-minded about career. Ambitious. She, ambitious. And she was interested in science fiction as a genre. She liked it. And she recognized talent. She recognized him. And she said, this guy is really talented. I need to tie myself to this guy because this guy is going up like a rocket. I can go up with him. And that's what they did. They formed a kind of uh, unspoken contract. And uh, she was with him quite a lot, advising him and consulting with him and helping him get what he needed to do his job. He became an art director on Battle Beyond the Stars, another example of him taking an opportunity that suddenly opens up. The original art director had a panic attack before he started the work, just before he started the work, and he basically crapped out. And so Corman, in a panic mode, said, who in this crew knows anything about art direction? Jim Cameron knew nothing about art direction, but he could draw. And he says, I know. And he says, okay, we need 17 interior spaceship sets in two weeks <laughs> made from basically cardboard and duct tape and, and then it has to be painted and, and um, detailed with little things you put up on the wall to make it look like it's technologically complicated and it's not. It's just uh, upside down McDonald's trays, you know, right. that are painted over. And um, uh, Jim came up with a word for it. He calls it kludging. Kludges the set, kludges mm -hmm. the wall so it's not so plain. So he took over as art director, and that's the time where he literally was up like 16 hours a day preparing for it, drawing the drawings and, and making the schematics and talking to the crew and figuring out how quickly they could put it together. And it was getting to the point where he was falling behind, and they were about to shoot on a set, and the paint wasn't dry, you know. But Jim learned how to do it in such a way that he could placate Corman, and he could get the camera crews ready to shoot on time by doing shortcuts that wouldn't be noticed on screen. Mm -hmm. And uh, like he wouldn't build a complete set, he'd just build a section of it and start shooting on it. And then as they were shooting, he'd build it out. So he was starting to engineer this production process. He's very influential on Battle Beyond the Stars, more so than the director in a way, because he had hands-on experience with creating the backgrounds and environments in which the film was shot. In just a minute here, I want to ask you about the next project, Galaxy of Terror, mm -hmm. and the severed arm shot. Oh, yeah with the mealworms and James' idea to use science to get them to move. Yes. <laughs> we'll be right back here with Randy Frakes. Welcome back here with Randy Frakes, uh, talking about the start of his and James Cameron's career. 
I want to go back before we talk about Galaxy of Terror. You were a few years and, and are a few years older than Jim and started first as an investigative journalist. You yes. were in the U.S. Army. Um, I believe you editor of a newspaper. Yeah, 16th Signal Battalion. What was it that took you from that and led to your interest then in fiction, as specifically science fiction? Well, I'll try and tell it as short as I can. I, without anyone asking me to, I'd heard rumors that their prisoners were being abused at Mannheim Stockade at the time by guards, and, and nobody was doing anything about it. So I wanted to see if those reports were true. So I had a friend of mine who was an MP get me arrested and put me in a charge where I could go to Mannheim Stockade wow. as, as a prisoner. And then I started talking to the prisoners. And the first nasty thing that happened is some of the prisoners thought I was a stooge sent in by the warden to see who would who would rat on them, you know. Mm-hmm. And if they would talk about it, and then he would eliminate those people somehow or stifle them. So they actually took a, a, a spork, you know, a plastic fork, mm-hmm. broke the end off so, sharp, so it was sharp, and he put it up against my juggler vein. He says, if you can't convince me that you're not a stooge, I'm going to kill you and you'll be dead on this floor in 30 seconds. And I couldn't say anything in that one moment. I, I was totally frozen. It was the first time in my life where I had nothing to say and couldn't figure out what to do. Fortunately, there was another prisoner in that group who said, no, no, he's a, he's a newspaper guy. He's a good guy. He's really for us. He's, 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 not, he's not a bad guy. And they stopped. He took the spork away and I went, oh my God. So I did the report. I almost got kicked out of the army with a dishonorable discharge because I didn't get permission to do that. And the guy said, I'm going to court-martial you. The, the major who was in charge of my unit, he was very disgusted with me. He said, get out of my office. I'm going to, we're going to start the court-martial in a couple of weeks. And I didn't hear anything for like a month. I was having a good time not being on duty. I was excused from duty and I was sort of confined to the barracks. And I just read a lot of books. That's where I got my grounding in philosophy, mm-hmm. reading a lot of books there in the, in the barracks. And uh, so he calls me in and I go to report to him and I come into his office and he goes, you are one lucky son of a bitch. And I said, what do you mean? And he throws this envelope at me and I thought it was going to be the court-martial orders. And I, he says, open it outside, get out of my office. I get out of his office and I open it up and it's an award from the Stars and Stripes, which is the official U.S. Army newspaper giving me an award for the best humanitarian story of the year for that wow. story I did. So the army threatened me and saved me in the same moment. And uh, so he couldn't really kick me out of the army for something I was being awarded for. By no, no by another I would say, yeah. So what I learned from that experience is that because the, uh, the inspector general came in and, and changes were made at Mannheim, the warden was reassigned and some of the guards were accused and, and had to stand military trial for abusing the prisoners. And what happened was, I said, okay, the written word can be a powerful thing. It can change things for the better. But I thought, you know, but I don't want to risk my life doing this, being an investigative reporter, trying to lift the rocks on all the corruption and everything. You can get killed doing that. And I thought, you know, what's another way to do it that's safer? Well, what if I write movies that are socially conscious, that lift a rock fictionally? They're probably not going to want to kill me for that, you know. And um, so that's Through the themes. Yeah, so that's why... I decided that I, I I would become a screenwriter, and because one of my uh, one of the people I admired in the business was Stanley Kramer, not a perfect man. He he had some bad decisions he made during the blacklist, but regarding Carl Foreman. But as a producer of socially conscious films like Defiant Ones, Judgment at Nuremberg, On the Beach, I mean, 
those were films that had a tremendous impact on me in, in making me more liberal and humanistic in my point of view. Um, thinking that the human race, race is worthy of being saved, that we should be looking out for each other, not competing with each other. That's a fascinating story. What, how old are you at this point? I was probably 22. I, I'm sure you were a little bit panicked when you were in the middle of all of that. But, no, um, I was. I was. I probably have a slight disassociative order because I've never been that excited about my successes or failures. I've never been that impressed with anything that's gone on in my life. I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but my basic attitude at the time was, I don't care what they do to me because if they put me on trial, I can talk about the corruption in the, in the Mannheim stockade. I can make it public. It'll become a public record. I told oh, the major that. Yeah. I said, hey, I'm going to talk all about why I was there and what I was doing, what I found out. And that's going to go into the record. And that's your fault. The truth as a defense. Yeah. So let's skip ahead. You're working at New World Pictures. James is quickly moving up. Roger is clearly a fan of him. What was the point where you realized, wow, the, the sky might be the limit for James? I knew that before he started working at Corman. When I first met him and read all his books and saw his sketches and everything, I thought, this guy has a vision that's unique. This guy has the ability of an engineer to break things down and apart and then reconstruct them in an interesting way. He, he has the, the focus, the will, the determination to push against any, anything slowing him down and, and get through anything to achieve his goals. I knew that like two months after I met him. I was certain of that. And when I worked on him on Xenogenesis, I saw more evidence of that. So then, uh, so I wasn't surprised when things were happening that way at Roger Corman. Again, I don't have big reactions. So I just went, yeah, of course. Of course Jim's going to be Makes successful. Makes sense, yeah. Wherever he is, whatever he's doing. You know, and if he hadn't met me, it might have taken him a little longer. But sooner or later, he would have found his way to his destiny. And uh, I just happened to be the guy that went with him. And um, I I thought at that time, what, what really was the big change is when a video asinitis, this uh, Italian uh, direct-to-video producer, kind of a slimy guy, wanted a director for Piranha 2, The Spawning, and since he had to buy the rights from Andrew Corman, who did the first Piranha film, they knew each other and they had been talking. And he said, he asked, do you know anyone here working at your shop who would be good to direct this? And he said, I know a guy who'd be really good, James Cameron. So they met and they talked and he got hired on to be the director of Piranha 2, The Spawning. And he had an Italian crew who could barely understand him. He couldn't understand them. It was extremely difficult shooting conditions. And then a video asinitis is the usual routine is to hire a director. Actually, let me pause you there because I want to come back to this moment. But the film before Galaxy of Terror was meant uh, maybe inspired by some of the visuals that were in a film that came out a couple years before, which 1979, Ridley Scott's Alien came out. Exactly. You went with James to the, the Orange Domes. Uh, little yeah, little cynodomes. cynodomes, which were... Um, we call them the tits because they were dome-like and they had a little thing on the top looked like a nipple. <laughs> it was very weird. There uh, must have been a lot to talk about it at, at Denny's or wherever you went after that film. Do you remember what your reactions were at the time? I think his reaction to Ailing was actually stronger than his one for Star Wars. At least I remember it that way. In the sense that he he was, you know, motor-mouthing it about it, the good things and the bad things. I had a lot of reservations about the ending because I thought it was poorly handled pacing-wise. I disagreed with the way it was structured. And he was like, I don't care about that. I'm, I'm impressed with how this took the basic Star Wars idea of dirty tech and took it to the next step. 
And again, it's not scientifically accurate, this huge ship with all this steam and, and rust and, you know, it's ridiculous. It, but it's like he was being inspired by Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad and all these other films about these old steamer ships. And he was, he was, he was working the mystery and the adventure in an interesting way where he was, it's a set in space, but it has all these visual connotations with older works. And uh, he would talk about that and point that out to me. And I'd say, yeah, that worked. And the chestburster scene, we talked about that for a long time, about how that shocked the audience, how that's how you can use effects to great, great impact and uh, how they serve the story. And he said, this is a, one of my favorite science fiction movies now is Alien. Right away. Right away. And it's only ironic that he wound up getting to direct it later in his life. Yeah, there's kind of a full circle of a couple parts of his life that are really interesting. You end up then a couple years later on Galaxy of Terror. And Jim is now production designer and also second unit director and invented position. Tell me about the severed arm worm scene that you shot in the lumberyard, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they call it the lumberyard because it used to be one. Mm-hmm. It was converted into a studio, sort of. And this story's been talked about quite a bit, but James' idea to basically science his way into getting the shot. Yeah, well, this is the reason also why Corman recommended him to a video asinitis to be the director of Prana to the Spawning because of his clever way of of solving problems. That's what Corman was interested in. Are you Do you have creative and inexpensive re- ways of getting the shot so that he can release a movie and make money? And so what Jim did is they, there was a scene where you had to have these worms feasting on a flesh of an arm, a severed arm. And so Jim's trying to figure out, well, how do I get these, these worms to like wiggle? They're just laying there. It looks like they're little rubber slits, you know, they're, they're, it's not convincing or dramatic in any way. And he needed to get the shot and he needed to get it before the end of the day. Now on Xenogenesis, he had wired up Bill Wisher to get a, uh, an impact of a laser beam on his leg as he's dangling off the edge of this ledge. And the, the, so he had to wire up Bill with a charge, a little charge that could be set off by an electrical impulse. And then he put a little disc to protect his leg from the explosion of the charge. And he did it on both sides of his legs, like the beams going through it. And it looked great on film when he actually put the laser beam in. But what happened on set is that he almost electrocuted Bill because he didn't realize that he hadn't insulated the protective plate and it took the charge and transferred it to Bill, and it was like you know, 110 degree AC going right into his body. And he was also hanging from a, a high place at the same time, so it was kind of like Harry. <laughs> Could have been bad. Yeah. yeah, and he actually, his costume caught on fire for a moment. We had to put that out real fast. But, you know, it was like we ran Bill through the ringer, and um, he did stunt work as well as performed as an actor in that, that short in any case, he remembered that and he remembered, okay, well, what if I just ran electricity through them to stimulate them? You know, so he's always looking for things he's done in the past, how to improve or adapt to a new situation. And um, so he wired up the plate that they were on and and ran a current through it and they started squiggling around like they, sh- they would be because they're getting a, a painful charge. Now, it's kind of animal cruelty on the one hand, but on the other hand, Jim is a Darwinian, right? So whatever gets the job done. And he didn't turn it on for long, just enough to get a little warming shot. It was about 10 seconds long and he mm-hmm. turned it off. And they seemed to be okay afterwards. You know, they were still stimulated afterwards. So they only had to do it twice. They were still plenty good for yeah. reptile food. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they were, he filmed them very quickly and then wrapped. And Corman was very impressed with how quickly he did it and how effective the shot was. So that was, that, that incident had 
positive ripple effects for Jim's career. When we chatted before, you mentioned James strategizes on how to achieve things, um, like a general on a battlefield. Yeah, that's a very appropriate word, strategize. Well, you must have been there to see that skill first developing, really, at New World, his first kind of experience with an actual crew. It was on Xenogenesis. Okay. Uh, I saw it. And, and, you know, it was very clear to me because it was just me. I was the crew. It was just me and him. <laughs> and, and we would discuss it and lay things out on paper. And I'd say, Jim, how'd you come up with that? And he said, he would tell me it was bits and pieces of previous experiences he's had. And he mixed mastered them together to solve this particular problem. Jim is a problem solver. So, and, and he's challenged best, most stimulated. He's got that electric charge going through him like he had through the worms. When you put before him an impossible task, and then he says, I can do that. And then almost always, very rarely does he fail. He succeeds in his vision. And whatever it is you put in front of him, he will, he will figure out how to do it. Coming up after this, I want to ask you more about Jim's focus and a uh, bit of a chip on his shoulder to, to prove himself. Back with Randy Frakes right after this. We're back now with Randy Frakes, an accomplished writer and uh, the first person to ever share a directing credit with James Cameron. I think the only one, at least on a narrative film, I think yes. maybe a couple documentaries. Um, a relationship that was very important to James is that with his father, who didn't really approve of his career choice. You mentioned he'd occasionally express a little bit of frustration about that. I remember talking with Jim once and I said, listen, overachievers are really suffering from low self-esteem. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, it's like you have a cup and you're thirsty, you're dying of thirst and you pour water in the cup, but there's a hole in the bottom. So you have to constantly keep refilling the cup. And he said, well, what does that mean? And I, I said, it means that you constantly have to prove yourself over and over again. Once is not enough. You have to constantly prove it to yourself to build your confidence, but also to someone else who didn't believe in you enough. And then he said, oh, you're talking about my father. And I talked to Phil, his father, several times. And, and he did have kind of a, a, a cynical idea that Jim was do, going down a wrong way street, that this was not going to be a useful thing for him. And of course, Jim, being an overachiever, proved to his father about 17,000 times over. I think I kind of like disproved your theory, you know. And, you know, Phil, Phil changed his attitude over time, obviously, because he saw the proof. And he had to change his, his point of view. But it was a little too late for Jim because, you know, it's like, okay, I did all this myself. I didn't get a lot of support from anyone. And it wasn't until he met me that I said, hey, here's a specific way to do it. Let me help you do it. And the reason why I did it is because I knew he was going to do it. He was going to make it. I had faith in him. I was the opposite of Phil at that time where I said, I encouraged him and said, look, you have these skill sets, you've developed them, but it's not just the skill sets. It's not your experiences. It's the way you put it together, the way you think about them. And that is priceless. And that is a director's point of view. That's a director's responsibility. And that's a skill set and a talent all directors need to make films that stand above all the others. You met Philip Cameron several times. Yes. What was he like? He's a, like a, an old time Scotsman, so to speak, you know. He's, I mean, really the Cameron name says it. He's, he's like uh, tough, but kind of quiet, unassuming, a blue collar worker. He doesn't think you have to shake the world to live happily in it. And uh, which of course is not Jim's idea. And, uh, you know, Jim's always been aggressive and in, with his opinions and uh, confident or seemingly confident in what he was doing. But 
you know, Jim loves his father and his, Phil loves Jim, is very proud of him, of course, by now. And his mother, Shirley, who has always believed in him more than the father and has always supported him and encouraged him. She made the costumes for Xenogenesis herself, just sewed them <laughs> together. And uh, so he had those two halves of his parents, the one that was like cynical, like, show me. I don't know if this is going to work. This doesn't sound like this is going to be a very good idea. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't disparaging to the point of demanding that he not do it. He was just uncertain about it and worried about his son's future. And he wanted him to do something like stay, stay with what you're doing, being an engineer, being a metal worker. You can make a good living, be a comfortable person. You know, that'd be very much like what Phil would do. And, but his mother surely had grand ideas too. And she was, she was thinking my son can, can make it as a filmmaker. Uh, well, not specifically a filmmaker, but just anything he attempted to do. Mm -hmm. And, and because, you know, and she was always doing things. I mean, the thing that Jim didn't like about his mother is how she would go into his bedroom and clean up his office desk, you know, and, and then he couldn't find anything because Jim is very chaotic. He's one of those people who you look at his car sometimes in the past, not so much now, but in the past he had stuff everywhere, you know, because he was working on it all bits and pieces at a time and he'd keep going back and forth. So he wouldn't put things into neat little piles which is why he thrived on a studio set because it's very chaotic, chaotic there. There's light, uh, cables everywhere. Things are, are askew. Don't, don't seem to make any sense. It's all chaotic. And uh, where he thrives in that environment, I'm like, man, I can't think straight. You know, let's get some, some of this stuff over here in the corner in the order here so I can get out of the way. And whereas he's like, no, it's fine where it is. We're going to use it. You know, it's, it's ready to be used. So it's fine. And that's the way he was about his personal life and, and his mother was trying to help him. So she'd go in and clean up, you know, and he'd go, mother, don't clean up my stuff. I don't know where you put anything now. And, um, but she was supportive of him and his father was just more uncertain. But I think, I think this father was one of the driving that both of them were like her saying, Jim, you can do it. Whatever you want to do, you can achieve. I believe you can do it. And her father saying, nah, I don't think you can do that. And he was like, oh yeah, dad, I'm going to show you mom is right. You know, and, you know, that's probably a crude and simplistic way of putting it. He'd never think that in his forebrain, but it may have been the conditioning that caused him to be so ambitious and so focused. There is a, a constant kind of, you know, push and pull between those yes. that he would have been operating in. Yes. One final question with Randy Frakes about parting ways with Jim Cameron right after this. And back here with Randy Frakes, we'll continue our conversation in a later bonus episode. But one final question for you here. When James landed his first directing gig for Piranha 2, you also left Roger Corman's studio to pursue writing projects, and the feeling seemed to be that you were maybe going different directions. I thought, okay, he's good. He's probably going to make this film better than it is, better than the script. And then I thought, okay, everybody starts somewhere down the line in, in horror pictures. Coppola and all these other people started doing horror films and actors, directors, writers, producers. And so I thought, okay, this could be the beginning. This could be the beginning of a really decent career, the thing that I envisioned for him based on his skill sets. And so I just assumed it would be okay. If he needed me, he would call on me and I'd be there to help him. And then he came back from the Piranha 2 experience, dejected and, and pissed off because the picture wasn't good. He knew it wasn't going to help his career one way or the other. He might as well take his name off it. 
You'll hear more from Randy Frakes in a future bonus interview to break down what happened next, the reunion after Piranha 2. But for now, Randy Frakes, thank you for this conversation having us here. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> 